Welcome back. I'm now here playing Mr. Technology, helping Trisha Ricketts figure out how to use the headphones. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Well, that's good, because that's <laughs> step one in an interview process. What did you think? I'm so glad you and, uh, and Peter, uh, your your boy, were here to hear Nestor. What did you think of him? Oh, I thought he was fascinating. Yeah, and he's inspiring, don't you he think? He is, and, and the telling of the immigrant stories, especially from all over the world, and, and, and given the political environment all over the world, and here, you know, the push-me-pull-you kind of feelings about that, um, I thought it was especially fascinating. Well, you will be, too, because your novel, A Speed of Dark, is a fascinating novel, uh, I, I want to get a lot of your background. You're going to be on all the way till 630. Uh, because one of the characters in your novel is Lake Michigan. I'm leaving it at that. One of the characters, ladies and gentlemen, in Trisha's novel, uh, Speed of Dark, and her byline is Patricia Rickards, but I'll call her Trisha, uh, is a is a lake it is that lake that sits right out there that you can see out there you didn't say hello when you yeah well we're we're yeah. looking right out the vista pal. here is michigami which <clears throat> well, is one of my the things character. that I, I i enjoyed everything about your book one of the things i enjoyed tremendously was it's an ambitious book it is an it, it is not just well tell a story about uh, in much like the same way nestor is a storyteller you are a born storyteller how did that happen? Like a lot of people, I've read a couple things about you, and yeah, oh, yeah, you wrote poems and stories as a kid. Yeah. Everybody wrote poems and stories as a kid. Well, I think that's true, <laughs> but um, I come from a family. Uh, my dad was, one, hilariously funny. He was a people person, and he could tell a joke like nobody's business. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I've told the story that uh, he wasn't necessarily a very good golfer, but he was passionate about it. But he was also <laughs> like, fun. Wait a minute, like most golfers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> amen. So, uh, but people wanted to play with him because he just made it so much fun, and he would uh, he would tell stories on there. And he really was, I mean, people would kind of hang on his every word and listen to the stories he would tell about his growing up in Chicago as a young boy and being one step ahead of the rent collector mm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think, the concept of, of telling a story with a setup, kind of a punchline, and and the ending w- is perhaps built into me. Wow, interesting! Some genetic. Yeah, I, thing. Th- I think so. Where'd you grow up in Chicago? Actually, we grew up in Evanston. Okay. And lived there until we moved for two years. We lived out in uh, Glenview, Illinois, and then we moved to Glencoe. So it was always the northern suburbs. And your dad was in, I mean, I think there are a lot of WGN listeners who will who all of a sudden go, oh, my, when you mention the restaurants that y- your family owned, they'll go, oh, my God, I love that place. Yeah. Your family was in the restaurant business. They were, indeed. And uh, actually, the restaurant business goes back to 1898, when my great-grandmother... Really? Wow. Yes. She received uh, insurance money from the death of her husband, Hugh Ricketts, who he was a riverboat captain, I think on the Illinois River. Mm. And when he died, she used that money to set herself up in a tea room, and they were popular in that day. Yeah. And then uh, she made money. So she had three sons, and she set each of her sons up in a restaurant. They all called them Ricketts. They weren't really a chain. They were individually owned. One was at um, Chicago Avenue at Michigan Avenue. That's the one I remember. Yeah. It distinctly. Was, it was part of the toddling time. Sure. Truly. Sure. And, and then um, my 
dad's father had one at Clark and Diversity, mm-hmm. which was, oh, all of the um, after hours, uh, Mort Saul, Bob Hope, Danny Thomas. Uh, Nightclub guys. Yeah, they they yeah. would all go there. And a little story here. Sure. The guys who were actually assassinated in the, um, the Clark Street um, killing there, uh, they had breakfast. I mean the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Thank you. I, I was like searching Street for killing. that word, that I want title. to change the name of the you St. Got Valentine's it. No, Day No, I'm not going to change it. St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Clark Street killing. They had breakfast that day at our Clark and Diversity oh, wow. restaurant. Wow. And so um, celebs came there, and it was open 24-7. Oh, the good old days. Yeah, yeah. And so... Uh, Did you as a, as a young girl uh, hang out? Were you at the restaurant? And this is not the Ricketts family that is that has destroyed the Cubs, to my mind. That's another Ricketts family. Uh, no, we were here first. Yeah. Did you have a sense? I mean, running a restaurant a, a flamboy- can be a flamboyant kind of business. Well, it, it is and, and was. Yeah. And um, so when we were young and my dad had the restaurant at Clark and Diversity, uh, we didn't work there. We would just come as a family, and there were six of us in, in the family. And so they would put us in the farthest back room because <laughs> we were pretty rowdy, I guess. But um, So we were there mostly for dinner. But then, uh, this is back like in the 60s, the restaurant business uh, in this particular place started to tank. And it was, it was supporting two families, my dad and his brother. Oh, wow. So uh, Uncle John bought out my dad, and he then bought Ricketts Restaurant in Wheeling, Illinois, on the Chevy Chase Country Club, Country Club. site. It was a roadhouse. It was adorable yeah, yeah. and darling. And uh, so we all worked there, every one of us. Mm. And, you know, and we were dishwashers and, and salad girls. So and, as a suburban high school girl, you were talking back to your to your writing. You, you wrote short stories. You wrote for English class. You wrote... I'm always curious about the seeds of... Of someone who can write a novel as accomplished as, and you'll get to uh, hear how accomplished uh, the Speed of Dark Thank is uh, during this segment, uh, I'm always fascinated with what starts a writer's career. Uh, I guess I could say I'm not sure, except okay, even in grade school, I would write stories about my life and loves, wow. which is I think hilarious. What kind of loves did you have in grade school? Oh, crushes galore. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, I would sit in the kitchen on a stool as my mother would be chopping carrots or stirring yeah. gravy or doing whatever. I, by the way, never working or rarely working. But I would read these little stories to my mother, and I could tell from the hunch in her back that she was listening huh. and approving. Wow. And and it was really kind of a very subtle indirect support, if you will. Did any of your five five siblings write that, um, that you knew of, or maybe they were just hiding their stories from you? Um, not really, not uh, really. And and but I always wrote. And then when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a, a biology where, major. To, where'd you go to college? University of Illinois in, in Urbana. Yeah. And um, but I hit chemistry. Now I am not a numbers person. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, I've got to get out of this. And I thought, well, what do I like to do? I like to read and I like to write. Got to get out of this. Got to get out of that one. So I did. And I became an English major. And then I fell into teaching. Teaching. It was an accident. That happens. Yeah, that happens a lot of English majors. And uh, so for most of my 30-year teaching career, I 
um, I actually taught kids to analyze the writing and the style. Did you teach high school, grammar school, I did. college? Well, I started off grade school, but I, I went then after that into the high school level. And I had mostly, thank God, it was really a, a gift. I had the upper level kids who would come into the classroom with their forks in the air and say, when do we eat? Yeah, right, right, Truly. right, right I mean, sure. And, and so sure. we talked things like word choice and cadence and tempo and sentence structure and how that impacts the emotional reaction of the reader. And so, you know, it, it became inculcated into me. Yeah. And um, so in a sense, you were teaching yourself, too. Yes. Without yeah. realizing. And and I actually wrote my first novel when my personal children were little and they napped. So I wrote every day during nap time. I had two hours, one to three, pretty much. And I, it took me a year. And this is on an old-fashioned Smith Corona, sure, you know, sure. and it wasn't even electric. And it took me a year to write a draft. And um, so and then I refined and refined and refined. And I did get an agent back in the day from that. But she said, oh, this needs a whole lot of editing. <laughs> well, I went through some life changes and a couple of moves, and there was no computer. So I had no, it wasn't saved except in a hard copy. I think I had two or three. Yeah. Got lost in the move. Oh my gosh, like Hemingway's famous short stories getting lost on the train. Yeah, yeah, you mean, yeah. Uh, yes, yeah. I have read that yeah. one, by the way. Yeah. So, uh, but you know what? That was okay. It taught me how to get a reader to turn the page. Mm. Mm. And, and the arc of even of a chapter within a novel. Where were you teaching? Were you still in the Chicago area? I started at a Catholic grade school in Winnetka, Sacred Heart. It was my first. Know it well. Then I moved. Then I moved to Kansas City, and I taught in the Blue Valley School District, very nice uh, school district. And then when I moved back to the Chicago area, I taught at Maine South High School. Oh, sure, a fine school. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Was there a marriage and some children involved in this moving back and forth thing? uh, I'm sorry for you. Was there a marriage or children? Why'd you move? There, there was um, the loss of a marriage involved. Okay, and that so I came. I came back. I guess you could say home, much to the chagrin, I think, of my own personal children. But uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I get done to see them. All. They're still there, and I see them about every. Well, then you got serious about it. And you got a scholarship, didn't you? I did, and um, it was something that you applied for, right? If you were teaching uh, Shakespearean classes, and um, so I, I had had a friend who had actually gotten it maybe three or four years prior, so I went ahead and I applied, and by golly, I got it. And so once you were there, it was the University of Edinburgh. It was a three-week summer creative writing program. It happened to be at the same time as Fringe and the International Book Festival. Wow. So, I mean, it was so alive there, and we had writers from all over the U.K. who would come and speak and do their poetry readings, and it, it was a real shot in the arm. And that's, that's what really reignited your passion and, and energy for writing. It did. It turned itself that uh, that manifested itself in the short stories, which I do want to read some of your short stories. I have not. I've only read Speed of Dark, which is a fascinating book. It is also uh, very kind of Chicago-centric. There's no doubt about that. It is. I literally feel like one of her characters is looking over my shoulder. 
<laughs> that character being Lake Michigan. We'll, uh, we'll uh, continue this conversation after some news. Trish Ricketts' novel, Speed of Dark, begins with a, uh African-American man traveling to Northbrook, right? Northbrook and yes. knocking on a door and initiating a, a, a compelling story. But within 30 pages... Uh, a new character comes into the story. I'm going to read you a paragraph of what this new character has to say in the book. And you, there's no contest involved. Talk to yourself, talk amongst yourselves or your loved ones and tell me who this is. Some humans say I am unpredictable, given the sudden volatility interrupted by bouts of gloom. They would be correct. Others say I am whimsical, that caprice skips along my edges, sings on the crests of my waves, thrills at the variation of my hues. They would be correct, too. Still others say I am stable, a vast and wide expanse providing power for their use and rumination for their overwrought souls. Ah, yes, they would also be correct. Uh, That is Lake Michigan. (laughs) <laughs> narrating it is one of the the three narrators of this that's a bold leap i think uh trisha uh but you pull it off well i guess thanks I did. Rick. well thanks a <laughs> i lot, guess Rick. i did pull it off it it came as a kind of inspiration truly i knew that there was going to be a climactic moment that would happen um at Lake Michigan, and it kind of evolved into, well, I believe strongly in the ecology of the planet, that we need to take care of it, and I thought uh, Maryam, the, the female character, Mosley, the black male uh, character, they all have a grief and a worry that they are dealing with. And I thought, well, so does Lake Michigan, and whose name in the book is Michigami, which is the Ojibwe name for the great water. And so it just made sense to me to come at redemption from grief, healing from, from deep sorrow, that I could bring them together. In a sense. I mean, I think you pull it off remarkably well. I think they, they, if they're, you know, I hate to always say, ooh, there are three big main issues in the book, but I, I don't think they're issues as much as they are themes. Mm-hmm. One sure. of them is is the planet, uh, the health of this planet as exemplified by the lake. Mm-hmm. Another is race and race relations. Yes. Uh, yes. And another is sort of the, the, the struggle for redemption from grief. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you, are those... Okay. I would say that, a, that is very If I were an English teacher, that would be a good interpretation. Yes, and I would give you an A-plus for finding them. Um, but well, the woman, one of the fascinating things is, is in a sense, the, the lake is, is I say the lake is evil. This is anthropomorphic, going nuts. But, but it kind of is, in a sense, wooing mm-hmm. uh, the... Uh, main female character. I think uh, he's both seductive and threatening. Good point. And um, uh, it, well, I think it's kind of true about the the action of a large body of water. It seductive. We swim in it. We dive in it. We love it. We drink its water. We we water our gardens from it. And but it's threatening. What is this black man, uh, Mr. Uh, Mosley Albright, what does he want when he knocks on that door? Well, 
he I would have to say I think he's my my favorite character in he's a, a way. Good character. And um I think he's a beautiful, deeply spiritual man and he's arrived there uh, fairly early in the book. He has had a near death experience which and I have a sister who actually had a near death experience and she talked about the light that you read about in yeah, Helen Kubler sure. Ross's um uh, writings. And and so I thought this would have been a profound impact on anyone. So it, I went ahead and put that in there to explain why this wonderful man um, can kind of look into the eyes of people, see their sorrows, see their fears, and help them along. But uh, uh, Peter and I have recently, oh, I'd say in the last six years, uh, become uh, friends with many musicians in the blues world. Mm-hmm. And so I have come to love especially a couple of people and and this mosley is kind of an amalgamation of those people who have made mm. an impact on me uh mary m phillips m for uh for margaret right it's margaret, for margaret yes. right and, but em uh she's had some troubles um she has lo- some losses deep yes deep who, losses who did she lose she lost I guess the, not that it's insignificant, but she has lost her grandmother who raised her. But in her past, maybe 30 years prior, she lost her mother and her father died early. I I don't really explain much about him. So she has lost her Mamie, which is what she calls her, who raised her. She has also lost her husband, Jack, through divorce. Mm -hmm. But perhaps most profound. Her son. Her son. Yeah. Her beloved and only son. And she... There's guilt attached to a decision she made, and I think that it is true in our lives that sometimes you can make a cavalier decision that could have profound consequences. It's it's fabulous. Uh, you're getting a real sense of it. I don't want uh, uh, Patricia Trisha to give away too much. No, uh, uh, I don't because I think I mean the narrative okay. drive is very very strong. <laughs> and uh, but we will after a short break come back and talk about. Uh, some of the, you know one of the haunting chapters is titled uh, "Michigami Meets Jack." Yes, uh, we'll talk about that chapter and some other items in. My friend Maury Posley has just walked in here. He's on at six thirty. I can't wait to talk to him. We have a lot of catching up to do, uh, so stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, my friend Maury Posley's in here. He'll be on the air at 6.30, and we'll reminisce about the many adventures we've had in our lives. Uh, Trisha Ricketts is here for a few more minutes talking about her 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 complex but not challenging. I don't think this book is challenging. I think it has a real strong narrative drive. Good. It hits you. a lot of Chicago places, oh, Trisha. Yes. Oh, of course, that's purposeful. Uh because it's part of your life, right? It is, and it has been. So, tell me some of the places it hits. I mean, it goes to the uh, the aquarium. It goes to the parties downtown. It's all over the place. It is. Well, it, uh, <coughs> there's a train ride, which is kind of Odyssey-like, if you will, uh, yeah. on the Metra. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's one thing. And, and she travels from the northern suburbs, and there's this transition from the orderliness of a suburban lawn or backyard into the 
cacophony, if you will, of streets and back alleys and, and dumpsters as she gets into the city. So that, if, if anyone's ever taken the train and done that track, they understand that that's, that's part of it. And then when she gets off, she's at Union Station. Um, and then, actually, yes, it is Union. And then she walks Adams and meets people along the street, street people, if you will. And um, I think they're kind of interesting and fun. And she goes under the L and goes by the, um, uh, the uh, oh, I can't think of the architect, the one, oh, Mies van der Rohe. Yeah. That, she goes by there, there's a, a kind of a protest taking place, and she ends up at the Art Institute, and which is a holy mecca for me, certainly. Sure. Sure. And uh, for many people. And so I even talk about the staircase and some of the, the Louis Sullivan grill and some of the paintings that are within. And you, you so it, there's some iconic touch points, if you will, I think. That, yeah, but you can also sense your joy in this thing as it as it revolves. We talked about that one chapter that really is kind of haunting. uh Hold on, let me find it. Uh, an, the late, it's a lot of this, and I read you a portion of it uh, <laughs> about the lake and where the lake meets Jack. Oh yes. What that? What happens there? Well, um, as we said, the the lake is rather seductive of and dangerous, uh, though. And but and dangerous, He's, like he he can be kind of threatening. Like but he calls things, Miriam yeah. his Nibinabe, uh-huh. which is Ojibwe for spirit of the water, and he thinks she is going to be able to save him. So when he sees her with Jack, who is at that point her husband, he brings about some trouble mm-hmm. for Miriam and hoping to ruin Jack, but I don't want to go too much yeah, into right, it because right, it's right. An, I think it's an interesting... Yeah, this is, it's a tough book to talk about because you don't want to give too much away. Yeah. I mean, that. are you pleased with this? What was the process of writing this like for you? Uh, you mean actual writing? Yes. Uh, when the pandemic came, as I said, I had been kind of noodling around with it for a few years, maybe four years. And then I thought, you know, this pandemic is horrific, but it's a gift. And to be sequestered in your home, to be forced to do you know, jigsaw puzzles and finish your novel, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. And so I went ahead and put my nose to the grindstone and did it. And did it pour out with uh, joy? And there's some tough things in this book. There are, but... Um, the right, I love writing, and so the writing of it, I, I feel like, um, I don't know if you know Annie Lamott, but in her book sure. Bird by Bird, she says, uh, um, you have to have shitty first drafts and allow them to live. And then, so when you write, if you say, oh, I don't care if it's bad, because I can always come back in and fix it, it's kind of like, on the imaginative side, letting your children out to play in a playground. They're dancing all over the place. And, then, and they may not be orderly. And then walking away. <laughs> well, but but knowing that you can eventually put them in ranks and bring them into that classroom. These are people in the book who are, uh, all of them, I think, struggling to survive in a world that is uh, somehow inhospitable. But I still find the book kind of hopeful. Am yes. I wrong? 
I, I would have been a good English. I teacher, think it's but. tremendously hopeful. Yeah. I I think uh, one big piece, maybe we could use the word theme, in the book is faith. And it's not about faith in a religion or faith in a God, but it's faith that there is goodness in the world. Uh. And it's kind of one of the reasons the book is set. Most of it, the, the real time of the book is set on the vernal equinox because this is when the planet struggles between light and dark. And there's an epilogue which actually ends right near the solstice, right. which things have turned to the light. And um, many, many of these characters, whether they're down and out or or they're on top of their game, although <laughs> I'm hard-pressed to find one of those actually off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, I would do. But yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. Her, her grandma Mamie okay. maybe okay. might be on the top of her game. She's long but, gone, but go yes, ahead. Yes, yeah. but there's great faith. And I think there's a little character called Nona Cacetto, which is a, a little Italian crone. She's all about faith. Uh, that, oh, you said you'd be there? You're there. And, and you, you did, in order to write this, I have to assume, you did a lot of research. I did. Was that rewarding for you? It shows in the book, because the stuff, you don't feel like you're being lectured to about the, you know, the certain tribes that once lived on the banks of uh, Lake Michigan. Right. No, it was fun. I, I like to research. I don't like it to be an assignment, per se, but if I'm writing about something, like, I, I had to look up a lot about Lake Michigan, and I had this wonderful book written by John and Mary Mahan, M-A-H-A-N, called The Wild Lake Michigan. Mm. And I'm sure it's out of print now, but we found it in a rare bookstore. It was just a treasure trove of information about the uh, gradation of beach um, growth and and that there are three layers of beaches for example and i didn't know for example that this lake michigan in its present state has only been like this for 14,000 years i assumed it went way 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 back 14 so, million years yeah sure and and so but finding all that then then the eastland tragedy uh, sure. right, right here right over here right there right below us here um, I had heard about it, maybe, but I really researched it and pulled it into the... So there's a lot of information um, about the lake, about the Ojibwe. When you had to give this book to your uh, publisher, the She Writes Press, uh-huh. uh, was it difficult? Uh, no, I, a- well, I had decided that at this stage in my life, I didn't have time <laughs> to shop it around. Yeah. You know, and and look, for, who's going to take a debut author at this stage in the game? They don't want to take a risk on me. I didn't think. Well, they did it on famously on Norman McLean, who was a famous uh, teacher at the University of Chicago, who wrote uh, one of my friend Maury Posley's favorite books, A River Runs, a river through, runs it. through It. it, it I know it well. It happens, but I, you were satisfied, and you said, all right, this is my first novel out there, and I, I'm on to my second. I think, I think it's... Um, it was a matter of time. Yeah. And how much time I felt that I had and I wanted to get it out there because in a way I feel that this book is my gift with things I feel very profoundly about. Well, you do you do an amazing job, Trisha. Oh, we met at uh, some party your your guy Peter Hurley introduced uh, you to me. I've known Peter for a long time and I'm uh it's a you challenge yourself. This is this is no Dick and Jane book, but it's uh 
fascinating on every level. It was a, level. it was a joy to write. It's, I have to well, say, well, it's big themes, and you're a terrific writer. You're very oh, uh, thank you polished, so much, polished writer. You have a next Thanks, book in Rich. you, do you? Yeah, the next one is tentatively um, titled "The First of June," uh, and uh, I've said it in the pandemic because I think, oh my gosh, there's such rich, which like an auger plate full of <laughs> bacteria. I mean, we've got a lot yeah. going on with this pandemic thing besides just the coronavirus. And um, and I think I'm going to bring in the idea of the proliferation of guns. I'll be reading it. Thank you. And Peter, thank you, too. <laughs> thank you for having me, Rick. Uh, oh, my pleasure. My pleasure.